As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Please uh, find in your Bibles Matthew chapter 21. Take a break from our study of Thessalonians as next week uh, we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, 
And it's, yes, it is good to celebrate it every day, not just one day a year, because he is risen. So, indeed he is. Um, yeah, indeed he is. And it's good to celebrate it every day. Not so much the, the eggs and bunnies, don't really get into all that nonsense. But he is risen. We are forgiven. We are reconciled to God. New life is ours, and he is Lord. And it's good. It is good. So it's good for us to prepare our hearts this week because the events that, that are climactic for all of us really began the week before with this event that we read about today with his entrance into Jerusalem. And so that's what we'll consider today. This was a bold claim by Jesus to be Israel's Messiah. And it set in motion the events that culminated in his death and his resurrection, the suffering and exaltation of the Messiah, the things, kinds of things we've been hearing about in our study of Thessalonians. As we look at this, um, we see 10, yes, 10 things about Jesus. Do not fear, little flock. I'll get you to lunch on time. Things that tell us there is no one like Jesus. It really is. So we see first that he is Lord of this situation as he is of all others. We see it in his instructions to his disciples. He knew exactly what they would find and where and what would happen. He had orchestrated this entire event. But by entering Jerusalem when he did, he did something much more. He intentionally provoked the Jewish leaders to action, in fact, to kill him, um, to, to act for the, against the threat that they felt he was. They'd wanted to kill him from the beginning, but now with the massive crowds in Jerusalem, they wanted to wait until the crowds were gone and they could do this with uh, uh, less visibility, so to speak. But Jesus chose the, the day and time for all these things to happen. Um, the law says that the, the lamb is to be uh, acquired on the 10th day of the month, examined four days, and then offered on Passover. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem and lets them ask him, try him all kinds of questions, trying to trap him four days and they can find nothing against him and then the Passover lamb is indeed sacrificed at the right time. So he provoked them to action in such a way that would lead to his death at the date and time of his own choosing. But we see his lordship also and that despite that it seemed he was a victim, that he was uh, helpless through this whole ordeal, he was actually in control. You read the gospel accounts and he seems, it's just quite passive, right? He's arrested, he's bound, he's led to Annas, then he's led to Caiaphas, and then he's tried, and then he's led to Herod, and then he's led to, he's led to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate. He's whipped and he's scourged, he's crucified. It's, it seems like he's doing nothing. And yet, there is a moment in there when someone offers him wine mixed with myrrh that would and he refused it. That he says no to. He doesn't say no to being bound, doesn't say no to being arrested, doesn't say no to being spit on and mocked in a crown of thorns, beatings, doesn't say no to any of that. He says no to the one thing that would have dulled his experience of what he was suffering. He did not want, could not be said that no, you were under anesthetic the whole time, it doesn't count. No, he 
the, the only active thing we see is him refusing the one thing that would have dulled his senses to what he was experiencing. There is no one like him. He is Lord. Even though it seemed he was a passive victim, he was not that at all. He was Lord. There is no more majestic sufferer than Jesus Christ. It is astounding. It really is. That, that's our Lord. That, that's who we're worshiping and celebrating. And know this, just as he was in control in, in this situation and this week, this day that we read about and the days following, we can trust that he is Lord in our life as well. When things happen to us that seem to contradict that very claim that he is Lord, that he is in control, that he is after good, our benefit, we can trust him and Nothing will deter him. Nothing will distract him from completing the good work he has begun in your life. So, friends, do not fear. Do not despair. Do not be discouraged when, when difficult and, and confusing and perplexing things happen. He is Lord. Let that confession sustain you through the dark seasons of life. Second thing is that Jesus knows the future. Now, we see it in what seems like a, a detail, right? But he knew when and where the disciples would find a donkey that its colt would be there. He knew what the owners would say when they tried to take it. And Mark's account tells us that the owners do in fact ask the disciples why they're taking it. That may seem like a little thing, but Jesus also made other prophetic predictions that tell us he knows the future, not just little things that he maybe could have arranged on the slide, but, but massive events like he predicts clearly the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened about 40 years later by the Romans. But he also predicted his own sufferings in remarkable detail. He predicted his betrayal, his rejection, the mocking, the scourging, the execution by Romans, and his resurrection on the third day. So this is encouraging for us because Jesus knows the future. He knows our future. He knows your future and mine. Not just some vague outcome like it's all going to be okay, but he knows the future. He knows where he is taking us, and he, he knows the path he is taking us on. He knows our future, immediate and ultimate, and it's good. And you can trust him with the past. You can trust him in the present. You can trust him for the future because he's Lord, Lord of all of it. Third thing is that Jesus loves the scriptures and lived to fulfill them. Verse four says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, quote from Zechariah 9, intentionally claiming to be Messiah, but several times before Jesus did something or in the midst of something, Jesus would say, this happens so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. One great example is when he was arrested, Simon Peter, trying to defend Jesus, took a sword and in his attempt to defend Jesus, cut off the ear of one of the people there, a man named Malchus. Um, and the only reason we know his name is because this was his story. I'm convinced he became a believer because, you know, I mean, he lost his ear and got it back. You know, this is like, that's pretty cool, right? So, and that's typically why a name is mentioned in story because this is, this is a real story. You could go find Malchus. You could ask him, this is his story. He owns the story and he's responsible for it. He was a, an eyewitness and an active participant. Okay, not in my notes. Come back. Um, Simon Peter cuts off the, the ear Jesus stopped Peter, healed the man's ear, and then he says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's a lot of angels, okay? 
But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? It was more important to Jesus to fulfill the scriptures than to remain alive, <laughs> than to remain free, than to remain, uh, you know, he could have continued teaching in the temple among people, Galilee, anywhere for years, right? But he said, no, it has to be this way because this is what the scriptures say. Even at the cost of my life, and what a tremendous example this is. He saw his life in the light of Scripture. He was committed to obeying it even at the cost of his life. And as we treasure Christ, we treasure his word, understand our lives in light of his word. And we also understand that he was faithful in every way. And this is the ground of our salvation. So he is, he is our king and our champion, our savior. And to the fourth point, he is our Messiah. As I said, his entrance into Jerusalem was a bold claim to be Israel's Messiah. Everybody understood that. Matthew 4, I'm sorry, in verse 4, as I said, Matthew cites Zechariah 9 saying that Jesus fulfilled it. And the crowd, they're shouting things like, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and, and all kinds of expressions. And these are not just random statements. These are statements that are full of messianic meaning. Okay, And Everybody that day knew the significance of this moment. Now, there may have been other people who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, okay? But, and that is, made claims to be Messiah. And there was no doubt what they were claiming. There's no doubt here. Jesus was claiming to be Israel's Messiah. The question is, is he legit or not? <laughs> is he their Messiah or not? And of course, we understand he fulfilled many, many more predictions from the Old Testament about the Messiah. So, yes, he is. Messiah means anointed one. The Old Testament predicts a coming believer who would accomplish his mission in the power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, we'll see this pictured through three kinds of people that were anointed for what they did. We see prophets and priests and kings anointed. So, uh, it's, I think it's helpful for us to think about Jesus as our Messiah, as our prophet, our priest, and our king. See, like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus declared the word of God to his people. He called them to repentance and faith. He called them to covenant renewal. Jesus did the same thing. But he was different from them because the prophets often said, began most of their, their, their prophetic speeches with, thus says the Lord. Well, Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. What he said is, I say to you. See, he, was, he was more than a prophet. Yes, a prophet. But he was more than a prophet. And because he is our Messiah, he is our prophet, and we can trust anything he says. As a prophet, he is infallible. And he is trustworthy. He's also our ultimate priest. The priest in the Old Testament brought many animal sacrifices to remind God's people daily and weekly and monthly and annually and just a few more times for good measure that the only way to approach God is through the death of an innocent substitute. There is no other way. When Jesus came as our priest, the offering that he brought was not a bull or a goat or a lamb, but it was himself. It was his own life. It was his blood that he, that he offered for us. And because he is our Messiah and our priest, we can rest in his death his resurrection as all that is needed for our salvation. That is it. There's no more religious act. There's no more ceremony. There's, there's nothing to do but rest in him. And Jesus is also our ultimate king. This is the most common messianic theme that we find in scripture that 
Messiah would be the king who would overthrow God, the enemies of God's people. When Jesus came, he demonstrated his rule over the visible world, creation, nature, disease. He also devastated his rule over the invisible, the invisible world, angels, demons, even over sin, over death itself, right? That's what we're celebrating. And since his resurrection, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth, everywhere we can see and everywhere we can't see, is given to him, to a man, Jesus. And he reigns at the Father's right hand. But he is not like the kings, the powerful of our day, because he rules with gentleness and humility and grace. So we see this in verse 5 where it says, Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the, the foal of a donkey. See, he didn't storm into the city on a white horse. Now, I think that day is coming, but this was not that day, right? This day he rides in in humility and gentleness and joy. Did you see that in the, the joy of this day? It's, um, it, it was a good day, right, for everybody except those who were threatened by Jesus. We see his gentleness in other actions even in this story. For example, he had the right to demand this donkey. Instead, he gave instructions that provided a polite way to, he said, just tell them the Lord has need of it. He didn't say demand it and say, I hereby, you know, um, you know, commandeer this donkey. <laughs> nope. He just said, tell them the Lord has need of it and that'll be enough for them. That's, that's gentleness. That's not, that's not exercising, you know, dominion and power. It is, it is gentleness. And we see, we see in the crowd, there were many there who worshiped, who, who were not genuine worshipers, who, who didn't understand for whatever reason, but he didn't rebuke them. You know, he could have stopped, got off the donkey and said, you know, 90% of you guys are losers, right? But he didn't do that. He's gentle, patient, and he didn't overthrow those in power. He didn't march into the temple and, and, and defrock the priests and, and banish them. He didn't do anything with them. Instead, what did he do when he got into the temple? He heals the blind and the lame. That's what he does. Just a picture of a, of a broken curse and the death of death. His gentleness is, is described beautifully in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Isn't that a beautiful and precious promise? Take my yoke upon you, and yoke, often a picture of being under the, a master, under a ruler. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now Jesus may, Jesus may ask things of us that, that perplex us and that challenge us beyond what we think we can endure, and yet his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We can trust him. This is our king. In Matthew 12, he says this beautiful passage there, we'll just read a couple of verses. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory, and in his, names, in his name the nations will put their hope. How many times this, this passage has encouraged me because honestly, there's more days I feel more like a, a smoldering wick than a, <laughs> than a burning flame, <laughs> you know? 
you don't have to admit that you feel that way to, or maybe you guys are better off than I am. I know you look better for sure. So a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He is so incredibly gentle and kind and patient and restoring. This is our king. He is our Messiah. He is our king. And so we submit to him, right? As a prophet, he is infallible and we trust his word. As a priest, he is impeccable and we resist, we, we rest in his sacrifice, his death and resurrection. As a king, he is invincible and we, we submit to him. So, fifth, Jesus is worthy of our trust. The owners of the donkey and the colt let Jesus have them simply because they were told the Lord has need of it. And in Mark's gospel, he says, tell them, if they ask, tell them, I'll return it. So it's just almost funny, right? And the owners, in fact, in Mark's gospel, he does give us that little detail. It's funny, Mark's gospel is shorter, but he tends to add more details to stories than the others. Really fascinating. But that, that detail is added in Mark's gospel. He just promised to return it. And that was enough for them. That was all the owners of, of these two little animals needed was the Lord has need of it. And they, they entrusted that to Jesus. So I would say to you, remind you for us all, he is worthy of your trust and my trust and all the gains and losses of life. Even when things happen that we don't understand, when you bury a loved one, when you find yourself in the cancer ward, when people you love reject you, when you lose job and health and whatever else it may be, you can trust Jesus. He, he is enough and he is worthy. You can trust him. I don't know what's going on in your life. I've got enough with my own life. <laughs> I will say this. Jesus is enough. You can trust him. Sixth, Jesus is worthy of our worship. So when he entered the city as Messiah, the crowd cries out, Hosanna. There's cries of blessing. All of these were cries of, of worship, right? <clears throat> but this is not the first time Jesus was worshiped, nor was it the last. Because we see in scripture that Jesus received worship from the Magi at his birth, Matthew 2. He received worship from his disciples after he calmed the storm with the word. They said, who then is this? Calms the, the, the sea, it speaks to the sea and, and it obeys and, and they worshiped him. After his resurrection, it says there were about 500 gathered on the mountain and they worshiped him. Interesting, it says some doubted. <laughs> okay, but they worshiped him. Here is a man who was crucified, dead. He is alive again. And Revelation tells us that, or Hebrews 1 tells us that God commands that all the angels of God worship him. And in Revelation 5, we're told that thousands and thousands of angels worship him. Jesus. And then the next verses, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth worships Jesus. It is unthinkable that a man would be worshiped. And we see this many times in scripture, right? When, especially like Daniel, uh, John, others, they get visions and there's some angelic figure before them and they bow and they fall before them and, and, the, and the, the other person, the angel, whoever it is, is quick to pick them up and say, no, no, don't worship me. I, I'm just spokesman, I'm just a messenger. 
But Jesus never did that. He blessed those who worshipped him. He received worship. As a man standing in front of another person, he received their worship. No rebuke whatsoever because he knew it was the right and appropriate thing to do. And he is worthy of our worship. We've been talking about this the past few weeks, right? We are created in God's image. We all worship, we all trust, we all love, we all hope in something or in someone. You cannot not do these things. But our worship must be focused on a worthy object. That is the meaning of worship. It is acknowledging the worthship, the worthiness of the object, the person you worship. And he alone is worthy. He is altogether worthy. He's always worthy. He's eternally worthy. He's exclusively worthy. He's everlastingly, exceedingly worthy. Seventh, Jesus is worthy of worship, but he's not deceived by false worship. Of course, the crowd was mixed, right? They were his disciples. There were many there who did worship him, who were genuinely seeking the Messiah. This was a joyous day for them. There were some there who perhaps wanted freedom from Rome and see Jesus as the Messiah. Perhaps he could be the one. There were some who were caught up in the moment, some who were opposed to Jesus. Those were all there. And it's, it doesn't escape us that from this very crowd, most of these people within just a few short days will say to Pilate, give us Barabbas. Let Jesus be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. So we, here's, it's worship, but it's at its root, it is false. It, the, the worshipers themselves are false. And though Jesus said nothing at the moment, we, we need to be clear. He was not deceived by this. He knew the heart of every person that was in the crowd that day. And we need to understand that he has that same knowledge of each of us today. He knows the difference between the true and false worshiper. He knows if your worship is genuine and if it is false. You may think you have a deal with Jesus. As long as he doesn't inconvenience you too much and doesn't, uh, you know, if he does what you want him to do, then, then you'll worship him. But see, that's, that's what an idol does, right? An idols, don't incon idols don't inconvenience us. Idols don't ask things of us. They do whatever we want them to do. They promise us whatever we want, never inconvenience. So that's what an idol does. That's not what Jesus does. He does inconvenience us. <laughs> I mean, has he not intervened in your life in ways that perhaps cause you to cry out in anguish at first until you recognize his hand at work? What are you doing, Lord? Am I the only one that has asked that question? In the last 30 minutes, <laughs> just kidding. 24 hours maybe, yeah. What are you doing? I do not understand, but that is what he does. He makes moral claims of our lives. He has the right over every area of our lives. He is no idol. He is worthy and he is not deceived by our false worship. Uh, the eighth thing is that Jesus is patient. As we've just said, the majority of this crowd was probably not genuine, but he, he said nothing in the moment. And even though when he threw the money changers out of the temple, he didn't look very patient, right? But think of the times that he had been in that temple when all of this was happening. 
and he keeps silent. Time after time. We know he was there as a child with his parents. Who, how many times did he enter that temple and see this happening that no doubt grieved his heart ever bit as much as it did the day he took action. And yet he was so focused in on the Father's will that he knew that day was not the day. This is the day. That day is coming. He did it once before at the beginning of his ministry. He does it now in this final week of his earthly pre-resurrection ministry. And he is, he is patient. He he waits. I don't know how waiting works. If you're outside of time, I don't know if it gets too philosophical, but he's waiting. Okay. He waits. He is, he is patient. He's patient with you and with me. His patience is his special love for people who are slow to change. Anybody here slow to change? Say, I don't know about you, but I don't have any new sins. I just have old sins. <laughs> so it's the same ones I've been fighting, I feel all my adult life. Same old things. You think, you would think I would know better. And yet I marvel at the patience of Christ with me. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1 that Jesus demonstrated his perfect patience with him. And his patience is perfect. Understand there is an end to that patience. That is, there is a day coming when, just as it happened in the temple, Though he walked in and out many times saying nothing, even today people rebel against him. Perhaps you feel he says nothing. That day is coming when all those things will be addressed. But to now, for now, he offers you his mercy. He offers you grace and pardon. Really interesting this week, meeting with some others, and, and uh, one of them made reference to uh, his quoting from a book, uh, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland, but he's saying from Isaiah 55, it says God's ways are not our ways. And we often use that by saying, you know, okay, there are things happening I don't understand, but I trust God, his ways are not our ways. But the context of Isaiah 55 is pardon and forgiveness. It's like the point is God's ways are not our ways. We want revenge. <laughs> we, we want retaliation. God's ways are not our ways. He pardons. He forgives. He is gracious. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Let, let the wicked forsake his thoughts. Let the unrighteous man his ways. Let him turn to the Lord, for our God will abundantly pardon. His ways are not our ways. He is so kind, so forgiving. If you do not know the Lord, just plead with you today. Go to him. You will find everything your heart hungers for. Ninth thing, we're doing great on time, right? I should have, I should have 10 points more often. I have three points and we go to 12.15. Of 10 points, and we're like late breakfast. So, I guess I scared myself by coming up with, nine, with 10 points. Actually, there were 12. I cut combined to the things I deal with week by week, right? Just to spare you. All right, ninth point Jesus exposes unbelief. So, when he entered the city, the hostility of his enemies was immediately exposed. You see their protests as he comes into the temple about all the people crying out, his response to them. The unbelief of the crowd, that will become apparent within just a few days. For now, there's the question. We see it in verse 10. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, 
the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now this was correct, Jesus was a prophet. He was from Nazareth in Galilee. But you need to understand, it is not enough to say Jesus is a prophet. It is not enough to say he was a good man or a teacher. He is more than that. He is the Son of God and he is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your, your faith, love and hope, worthy of your worship. And it is not enough to, to come up with something nice to say about him. It is not enough to simply think, I do not oppose him. I have nothing against him. That's not enough. It's not enough just to say, yeah, he's a prophet. He is Lord. And the scriptures tell us that every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Yahweh, that this man standing before us is more than a man. He is God incarnate. And you will bow the knee. I don't know who you are, where you are in your spiritual journey, but this I can promise you, you will bow the knee. And I pray, I plead with you today, Bow the knee if you haven't already. Bow the knee to him today. Acknowledge him as Lord today because there will be a day when you will acknowledge him as Lord, but there will be no more opportunity for forgiveness. This will be the acknowledgement of defeat and of regret, not, not the acknowledgement of joy from those who, who know him now. So he exposes unbelief and everything he is doing in our lives is designed to take us deeper into faith. He does things still in our lives, even if we believe. He does things to expose our unbelief, to take us deeper into faith, building up our faith in Him. Tip 10 of 10. Jesus wants us to pray. You're expecting some big, large, complex statement. He wants us to pray, and He, he wants to remove every hindrance to that. So we see this as he cleanses the temple. It's one of the few times Jesus displayed anger when he was on earth. These money changers were set up in the court of the Gentiles. So this is where the non-Jewish people could pray. They couldn't come any closer. So if anyone who was not Jewish was going to pray to God, this was as close as they could get in terms of the temple and its layout, its arrangement. In Mark's account, Again, not the little detail Mark gives us. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. For the nations. So the nations should be able to come to that place and pray. The Lord wants the nations to come to him and pray. He wants us to pray. Okay, He wants us to pray more than we want to pray. Um, but at this moment... When someone comes to the temple, to the court of the Gentiles to pray, first they hear, well, you heard it in the video, right? This, this level of noise just from the business that's going on. It is distracting. It is no doubt difficult even to focus your thoughts in order to pray. I don't know if you have trouble with that. I, I struggle with distractions and things that there's a lot of noise going on. You would think my children would have trained me having grown up with virtually no silence. I think that's why I started getting up early, just to have a few minutes of quiet. I, you know, I've learned to pray with NBA videos going on in the background and music blaring out of one corner of the house. That, that's all. I'm learning. Actually, I haven't. They all just grew up and left. And now the house is oddly quiet. So we pray for grandchildren. So, so far, no one is cooperating with that prayer. 
So, but our last child, our fourth child is getting married in June. So we'll see if, if he'll come through. That is not in my notes. So I'm gonna come back, come back to this. I know this is being recorded. Andrew, if you're watching. All my offspring, we want grandkids, okay? That's no secret, we've already told you hundreds of times. Back to the notes. There is the distraction of the businesses happening, right? That was really brought out well in the video. But there's something else happening because people came to the temple in order to make whatever sacrifice they had to make. Of course, they were coming from a place where they had to, they were allowed by law to not to bring an, an animal for their offering, but they could purchase it there. But in, in those cases, they would have to exchange the money to get the right currency in order to, to buy the animal for their offering. So that's, that's what the money changers were doing, and this was a corrupt system. And so what you have is someone coming into the temple. They want to make some sacrifice. They want to make some offering. And by the time they get to the place where they are ready to pray, they have already been robbed and victimized by the people who claim to be the people of the God to whom they pray. You can imagine that would make it really difficult to pray. And I think that is at least a part of why Jesus was so upset by this sight, is their presence and their activity was a hindrance to people praying. He wants us to pray. He wants us to bring him our thanks. As I said a few weeks ago, as we talked about prayer, you know, by having that element of thanksgiving, that keeps us from just sort of Worrying, thinking about God while we worry. You know, when, when we give thanks, it really causes us to focus on Him along with what's going on in our lives. He wants us to bring Him our burdens so He can bear them. He wants us to bring Him our heartaches so He can heal them. He wants to, us to bring Him our longings so He can refine them. Now, perhaps you've heard that prayer changes us for things. It changes us for circumstances more than it changes circumstances. There is some truth in that. Prayer does have a way of adjusting our perspective. But you also need to know that we have a Father in heaven who hears and answers. He does things in response to our prayers. This prayer is not just some kind of moralistic, deistic therapy session. Okay? We are talking to our Heavenly Father who controls everything and he hears and he answers and he is for us. He is already for us. We don't have to do anything to persuade him that we're good enough to be helped. He helps us for Jesus' sake. So go to him. Go to him with confidence. Go to him with boldness. That's what Hebrews 4 says. We, have, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we have a merciful and faithful high priest who will, we will find mercy and receive grace to help in time of need. So go to him. Pray Pray to him with confidence. Ask him. He'll refine your longings. He'll, ref he'll, he'll redirect your request. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. As we delight in him, the desires of our heart are changed. We learn to, to ask for the right things in the right way. But we have a Father in heaven who hears and answers. This is, this is Jesus. He is our God. There is, there is no one like him. He's our Messiah. He paid a price for us that we might be reconciled to God. And as we, we transition to communion, I'll invite the worship team to, to come up, prepare. Let's just take a moment on, to reflect on what happened after 
his entry into Jerusalem. As I said, the Passover lamb by law would be examined for four days for flaws and blemishes. Jesus faced question after question, day after day, people trying to trap him, trick him into doing or saying something wrong, but that never worked. Finally, one of his own betrayed him. He was arrested and bound, tried, condemned in a gross miscarriage of justice, turned over to the Romans who crucified him, but on the third day, he rose again. And by rising, he brings us forgiveness and life and has conquered death for all of us who put our hope in him. So that's what we remember when we take the, the bread and the cup today. We remember his broken body, his blood shed for us, and his soon, hopefully, return that we might be reconciled to God. And there's nothing magical, the bread, the cup. They're symbols of greater reality. When we take communion, what we're saying is that that our faith and love and hope are in Christ alone for this life and the life to come. And if that's, that's not where you are in your spiritual journey, I would urge you to wait and, and to not participate because by participating, you're saying, I believe. And if you don't believe, it's a bit disingenuous. You're confessing a faith you do not yet have. Our best outcome would be come to Christ. You come to Jesus with your heart, not on your feet. Come to Christ join us in celebrating this. So I will read from Matthew chapter 26. We've been in Matthew this morning. I'll read from that account of what happened. We have, I, I think, four stations set up. So I would ask you to go take the bread, the cup. Uh, if you would like to take both there, that's fine. But I would ask, if you don't mind, to, to take both back to your seat and we'll, we'll take them all together once everyone's been served. So I will pray, I will read, and then we'll invite you to come. So Matthew chapter 26. I guess I will read, then I will pray. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Even as we take this, we realize he is waiting for us. Isn't that sweet? That's just sweet and tender, gentle. So that's, that's our Savior. That's, that's who we celebrate as we take the bread and cup and as we remember the events of, that we remember in this week. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for all that you are to us, all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We confess um, our unworthiness, and yet we find that you have placed a price on us and paid it without flinching for the, as it says of, of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at your right hand. So we, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that in Christ we have a Messiah. We have a, someone worthy of our faith and love and hope. We have a Savior and a King, a prophet and a priest. Someone who receives our worship gladly, knowing our, our flaws and shortcomings. We give you thanks and pray that in these next moments, you'll help us to just to savor you, even with the, the taste of the the, the bread and cup to, to savor 
what you have brought to our lives in forgiveness and freedom and life. So we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. I invite you to stand again as we sing a final song. You know, in a, a previous life, I spent a lot of time in court in the UK and learned the difference there between the offences of dangerous driving and reckless driving. To be reckless, you have to know that there's danger and proceed anyway. And as Preston's been showing us, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he went to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. And he knew exactly what he was doing when Judas went out to betray him. And that's why it's okay to sing about God's love being reckless, because he knew what the consequence would be. And he went and he did it anyway, because his love for us was so great. So let's sing this song together. <laughs>